0: VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
1: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
0: Learn more at meta.com/slash metaverse impact.
1: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks?
2: Oh yeah, that's me.
0: Nothing extra,
2: just perfection and a straw.
0: Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block.
1: It's Friday, September 18th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis.
2: And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters.
1: You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook at slash podcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming, or DVD and CD. But best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now, for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of Practicing Mindfulness, An Introduction to Meditation. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds.
2: And this week's episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value, than giants like Schick and Gillette, and Harry's will give first-time customers five dollars off if you go to harrys.com and use coupon code Inquiring Minds. That's H A R R Y S dot com. Coupon code Inquiring Minds.
1: So it's been one of those weeks in California with raging wildfires and our drought continuing, and a p- potential El Nino looming, and even kind of rain sporadically. That was kind of weird. And, you know, potentially these are just the first of many, many changes that our world is going to endure in the not-so-distant future. And most of the changes that we are expected to endure are not super positive. Let's just put it that way. But what if we could actually reverse some of our mistakes? Well, de-extinction holds such a promise. It's the idea of bringing back extinct creatures, especially creatures that we humans have made extinct, and especially those that we've made extinct recently. And though it sounds straightforward at the outset, there are a lot of issues that come up if you delve just below the surface. So the first is, is it even possible? Would the animals really be the same animals that we, you know, caused to go extinct or would they be slightly different? And would they just go extinct again because they went extinct for a reason the first time? And then there's questions of which animals should be the first to be (laughs) de-extincted, How should we talk about de-extinction in terms of vocabulary? Where would they live? What effect would they have on the ecosystem that's there currently? And most importantly, I think... Who gets to decide the answers to all these questions? Well, these are really important questions, and they could have a profound effect on our future, and they are also really interesting to think about. So we wanted to cover these issues across two episodes. Um, So we have a two-part series coming up. This week we interview evolutionary molecular biologist Beth Shapiro, who wrote a book called How to Clone a Woolly Mammoth. And we're going to talk to her about the science behind de-extinction. We get into the nuts and bolts of whether and how it might be possible. And then next week, I'll be talking to M.R. O'Connor. She's the author of Resurrection Science, Conservation, De-Extinction, and the Precarious Future of Wild Things. So with her, we will focus on the environmental, societal, and ethical questions that the science of de-extinction brings up. So for today's show, Beth Shapiro is an associate professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where she studies ancient DNA. And she was also a MacArthur Genius Award recipient in 2009. And before that, she was a Rhodes Scholar and got her PhD from Oxford. Actually, she won the Rhodes in 1999, the same year in which I was a finalist and got passed over. So there's that. So that'll be our interview for today. But first, let's talk about some headlines that science made this week. And I have to say, this was one of those weeks in which it was very clear to me what it was that I needed to cover. Because first off, one of our Patreon patrons told us that it's something that we should cover, pointed us to it. His name is Mark Mulvey. And then my mother-in-law sent me an article, uh, talking about the study in question. And then finally, today, when I was in class, one of my students brought up the article in class and asked me if I had any comments. So obviously, we need to talk about this. And you can probably guess, but this is the news that Alzheimer's disease might be infectious.
2: How can Alzheimer's be infectious? It's a degenerative brain condition.
1: Yeah. So let's start at the top with the actual science. There was a study published this week in Nature that set off all of these headlines, and so let's get into what the study actually reported. These were findings from eight patients, uh, autopsies of eight patients. I should be, I should say, and these eight patients uh, had Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Uh, this is a neurodegenerative disease that is transmissible in the sense that if you eat uh, a misfolded protein, uh, called a pre- a misfolded prion protein, uh, then you can contract the disease. So, um, for example, there are tribes of people that are cannibals that have shown higher incidence of this particular disease. Um, but in the case of these patients, there was a treatment for being too short uh, in the you know, 80s and, and I think sometime between like 1960 and 1980, in which people were actually injected with growth hormone from the pituitary glands of cadavers. So the treatment itself was controversial because it it was found to have this higher rate of CJD in the patients that had these injections. And so the treatment was discontinued in 1985. So this is no longer happening. <laughs> so that's, that's first but- off.
2: Let, let's give them the scale about 30,000 patients were given this injection
1: 30,000 patients were given this injection and a small pro- proportion of them actually contracted CJD but it was much greater than in the general population so this CJD is a very rare disease um, so any uptick in you know the number of people who contract CJD is gonna you know is gonna be important to, to figure out the cause
2: it was 450 cases out of those 30 000. out of thirty thousand
1: 450 cases okay so out of those there's a small sample of eight patients um, and four out of the eight showed not only the misfolded prion on autopsy in their brains that, you know, was the cause of CJD, but also they showed some pathology that we often see in patients with Alzheimer's disease, specifically misfolded amyloid beta protein. So what does this mean? First off, let me just say straight out, Alzheimer's disease is not contagious. That means that you cannot contract Alzheimer's disease from encountering a person with Alzheimer's disease. Okay, But there is this hypothesis that the AD pathology, that is this misfolded amyloid protein, does mimic some prion disease-like characteristics that have been, and this, this, this idea has been circulating around f- for a while. So let me just unpack that. Prion diseases result from misfolded prion proteins. So healthy brains have correctly correctly folded prion proteins. But if a misfolded prion protein uh, comes into contact with brain matter, then it can kind of cause a cascade of effect. We call it like a seeding. So let's just say that particular misfolded protein encounters another healthy protein. It causes that protein to misfold and so forth spreads across the brain. Now... Alzheimer's disease pathology is... Still really, really, we don't really understand how it causes the symptoms. And, and I'll in a minute I'll go over some of the mysteries surrounding this. But we do know that outside of cells, there's also this misfolded amyloid protein. And the question remains how does this misfolded amyloid protein translate into more misfolded amyloid proteins? Is that like what causes it to misfold in the first place? Is it a little bit like a prion disease where if you injected misfolded amyloid beta proteins into our brains, would that spread the way a misfolded prion? On would spread, and the answer is yes. It seems that way in mice and monkeys. That if you inject this misfolded protein, you can get a you can get a seeding effect where you know it seems to sort of spread across the brain. Is
2: is this actually Alzheimer's then, or is this just Alzheimer's like?
1: This is one part of the Alzheimer's disease pathology. So I like to think of Alzheimer's disease pathology as having three parts. One is these misfolded amyloid proteins. Two is that something inside the cell goes wrong that causes tangles. It's called neurofibrillary tangles. And this is associated with a different protein called tau. And three, essentially, ultimately, you get a misfiring or or the, the connections between neurons start to atrophy. And that's really when you start to see symptoms. So for one thing, we don't know how, the, and we've been studying this misfolded protein for 20 years. So we know a lot about it, but we still don't know ultimately exactly how amyloid, misfolded amyloid causes or doesn't, or is just a byproduct of the other pathology that actually causes Alzheimer's disease. But what we do know is that women, for example, can show symptoms of Alzheimer's disease with much less pathology than men which I think is really interesting. And in the case of these patients who had CJD and had this AD pathology, none of them actually showed symptoms, but they were all between the ages of like 36 and 51. So it's possible they just just weren't old enough yet. It hadn't progressed enough for them to show symptoms. But secondly, we don't understand why AD pathology is more likely to show symptoms in women than in men. We also don't know why early onset Alzheimer's disease, people who get Alzheimer's disease symptoms, and these are usually um, resulting from genetic mutations you know, earlier in their 50s, have a much worse prognosis. Why does it spread faster? And, and how does the genetic mutation, especially in the ApoE4 allele, cause the pathology, because in women, they have a greater risk with only one allele, but men have to have two alleles in order to show an increased risk of, of showing Alzheimer's disease. I
2: know this is a science podcast, but you might have to tone it down a notch on the technical <laughs> terminology there. But uh, So I think there's two important things that came out of this. One, this is the first prion disease, or at least prion-like disease, we have observed in pretty much like 20 years. And that in and of itself is kind of Interesting. Wait, wait, wait. You
1: mean CJD?
2: Yeah. Well, whatever this is, because it's not really Alzheimer's, because they were asymptomatic.
1: Well, it, no, it's definitely CJD. Yeah. yeah. So, mm. so I mean, it, from that perspective, you're exactly right. But CJD, you know, there are sporadic cases of CJD that are happening all the time.
2: But, but what I think the more interesting situation here is: is there a a series of neurodegenerative diseases now, that we can start to link to prion-like behavior? Uh, and is that misfolding of the protein, it's not transmissible in the way that you know certain uh, lazy outlets have described it, but can we see the propagation of that protein causing those folding uh, diseases and associate that across to other neuro- neurodegenerative conditions beyond CJD.
1: Yeah, and I actually think what's really exciting about this work is that it leads us to potentially a whole new way of understanding how AD pathology spreads, and that might ultimately help us figure out how to stop the spread and cure the disease. So, you know, if we can understand the mechanism by which this amyloid beta misfolding, you know, piece of protein it creates a seed and how that can then sort of spread across the brain. Brain, then we can really get a handle, perhaps, on how that pathology leads to symptoms, ultimately, and what role it plays in the disease. But the problem with the way that this paper has been interpreted is that, you know, even suggesting that Alzheimer's disease is contagious, I think is really bad for society, because Alzheimer's disease already has a lot of negative connotations. Obviously, it's a devastating disease. Nobody wants to get Alzheimer's disease. But to then add this stigma of contagion, in which people are then are going to try to avoid individuals with Alzheimer's disease. I mean, I think that that is just creating fear that first of all, is unfounded by the science, and is just really bad for our society. Okay, so that's me on my soapbox. I'll get off now and uh, ask you, what did you, what caught your eye this week?
2: So I was inspired by the discussion we had a, a couple weeks ago about some of the uh, so uh, behavioral economics papers from Dan Ariely. We've covered some behavioral economics papers, and our research assistant Caitlin Smith sent in a story that sort of triggered a similar response in me. There's researchers at the Aarhus University in Denmark that measured synchronicity of heartbeats. Doesn't that sound lovely? Like people that are all gathered around each other, they will sync up, not only in sort of the feeling, but their heartbeats themselves will sync up.
1: Well, it just reminded me of the fact that my husband and I both have Apple Watches and we can like send our heartbeats to each other. And over dinner, um, we were telling people how, you know, we thought that was really intimate. And they were like, you know what? You're not doing intimacy right.
2: So yeah. It's a nerdy form of intimacy. <laughs> I think it's okay. Well, what these researchers found, they put um, people through a, a battery of tests. They The control test was big building a set of Legos, very Denmarkian. I know that's not a word. I'm just going with it. And uh, the actual studies, they played this investment game where you would make more money through collaboration with your peers. So people put in more money, everyone got more money out uh, as a result. And they measured their heart rate as they're going through this, because what they're really trying to get at is, does trust actually induce some of the synchronicity. And what they found is they noticed like elevated heartbeat, as you would expect when there was sort of risk aspects of the game coming through. But as people started to participate in that collaboration area, their heartbeats did actually start to come into synchronicity. And uh, that this link between uh, sort of trust and rapport um, was actually significant. It's kind of a funny thing to think about that if you're really uh, deeply trusting somebody that your body rhythms actually connect in some way. It seems uh, bizarre to think about, but it there does. is starting to be evidence around it.
1: Yeah. And I, I remember uh, one time one of my choir members uh, sent me a link to an article in which they showed, too, that there was another study in which they were measuring heart rates in people who were singing in a choir. And sure enough, they started to synchronize. Really? Yeah.
2: I think that's amazing.
1: It, it is kind of cool.
2: And it's creepy on some level, too, <laughs> that like you, we aren't so... Uh, uh, unique and individualized that we will find uh, find ways to sort of be in rhythm together. It just reminds me of MythBusters episode. They put hundreds of metronomes together out of sync, and uh, and they was on a floating surface, and you could see them coming slowly coming back into sync with each other. I mean, there's physics to explain that, but imagine that there might be some physics to explain this as well.
1: What I'm looking forward to is understanding the mechanism by which we can perceive another person's heart rate. Because I mean, I, obviously, this is implicit. I don't think you know we do it consciously. But some part of our body must be, you know, measuring heart rate and then syncing to it.
2: Yeah, they have no idea what is causing the synchronization. There's going to be some investigations on certain psychological impacts, or potentially even some hormonal impacts.
1: Very cool. So with that, let's take a short break. And we'll be back with my interview with Beth Shapiro. This episode is sponsored by Indian Summers, the new masterpiece series on PBS. It's set in India in 1932 during the twilight of British rule in India. And it's a twist on the period drama, providing a window into both British and Indian experiences during this time. Indian Summers features an international cast of Indian, British and Pakistani actors, including Julie Walters, Nikesh Patel and Henry Lloyd Hughes. It's set in the Simla region near the Himalayas, where the British would relocate during the summer to work and socialize. And while the British in India are living a life of privilege, the Indian people are beginning to rise up with calls for independence from British rule. It features complex plot lines that touch on politics, class, romance, and the rise of a nation. This nine-part series premieres Sunday, September 27th at 9, 8 central on Masterpiece on PBS.
2: And this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses has been in production for 25 years and offers engaging lectures by top professors who are experts in their field. One course you should check out is Practicing Mindfulness, an Introduction to Meditation by Eastern Philosophy Professor Mark Musi of Rhodes College. It's one of the most interesting and comprehensive explorations of mindfulness out there. You'll learn how mindfulness, when correctly practiced, offers deep and lasting benefits for mental functioning and emotional health, as well as physical health and well-being. For a limited time, The Great Course is giving a special offer to our listeners. Order Practicing Mindfulness and Introduction to Meditation and get 80% off the original price. But this 80% off savings is only available for a limited time. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to take advantage of this special offer. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds.
1: And this episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. Overpaying for drugstore razor blades is a bad habit that you should leave behind, so make the smart switch to Harry's. Harry's high quality German engineered blades are crafted for sharpness and precision. They're half the price of big name drugstore brands, and they ship them for free straight to your door.
2: Harry's razors are awesome. I use them every day. Best razors that I've ever owned. And stylish too.
1: Awesome. I do like the way they look. That's for sure. Although I don't use them yet. But maybe... <laughs> Smoothest shave yeah. you'll
2: ever get, Andre. <laughs>
1: Well, their starter set is just fifteen bucks, and that includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel. Which one do you like, sure?
2: Oh, definitely the foaming shave
1: gel. Ah. But as an added bonus, Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you use our coupon code Inquiring Minds. That's dot com, coupon code InquiringMinds. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Beth Shapiro. Hi, thanks for having me. We've been wanting to talk to you for a while, and I'm really excited to have you on the show. And I wanted to start out by asking you about your own personal journey. What got you interested in (laughs) DNA and ancient DNA specifically? It's
0: really, that's a funny question, and it's it's probably not the answer that you want to hear. I was actually extremely interested and convinced that I was going to be a broadcast journalist when I was in school. In fact, I went to the University of Georgia because they have a great broadcast journalism school. And I had already been working as a journalist. I was a news director at a local radio station during my freshman year, uh, which is kind of funny. Um, And I, I got interested in science along the way. I took a really cool course where I got to live outside under the stars for nine weeks, sleeping in a different national park every night. It was super cool. And it made me think that maybe I really wanted to be a science journalist. And since I was already working as a journalist, I should focus on learning about science. And kind of the rest just has happened along the way. I I like to think, although it's probably not the best thing to say, that I've made every major decision in my life based on the opportunity to go somewhere in the world that I hadn't been before. <laughs> So I got into ancient DNA and and science because I had an opportunity to go and work in Siberia. That's really true. <laughs>
1: Wow. Well, I imagine that's one of the best places in the world, of course, to study ancient DNA because it's cold and things are relatively well preserved. Is is, is that why or are there other reasons?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So I was a, a PhD student. I just started my PhD at Oxford University in England and I was looking for a project. Um, I had a project in mind when I first went there. And unfortunately, the person who I had intended to work with uh, passed away the summer before I got there. Complications from malaria. And so I was a little bit lost. And I met uh, this young and enthusiastic New Zealander, Alan Cooper, and he was—he said, uh, I don't have any students and I need someone to go to Siberia. Would you go to Siberia? And I thought to myself, well, that's as good a reason as any other that I can think of to take a PhD project, so why not? But yes, yes, Siberia we choose because the DNA that's preserved in fossils there is, is better preserved than in fossils anywhere else in the world because it is cold and consistently cold. And uh, that was in 1999. And a lot of the early work with ancient DNA focused on Arctic adapted species specifically for that reason, as you suggest. Yes.
1: So I want to jump right into some of the details of this. I I was really I've had there's one section of your book. I mean your whole book was compelling, but there's one section in particular that jumped out at me right from the beginning, where you describe um, this time when you got this 17 million million year old piece of amber, and in it there were a (laughs) bunch of bees. Um, right. So I want you to I'd love for you to just walk our listeners through the process of, you know, what do you do when somebody gives you this piece of amber? Um, and then we can talk <laughs> about, you know, what happens next. Sure. Well,
0: amber has been one of those things that since the early days of ancient DNA has been, you know, the the holy grail. Is it going to be possible to recover DNA from anything preserved in amber? And obviously this comes a little bit from Jurassic Park, which I should mention was motivated by ancient DNA, the developing field of ancient DNA, and not the other way around. My field of research was not motivated by the movie, although that's kind of a more compelling story to tell but anyway um, so we we know we 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 really do know that DNA should not survive that long. Um, there are theoretical expectations based on rates of biochemical decay that suggest that DNA should probably not survive for more than around 100,000 years. And these amber-preserved insects that I was working with, they were given to me by a colleague, Blair Hedges, at Penn State. Um, we knew that these were probably around 17 million years old or so. So we had very little hope that there would be DNA in them. And yet, they were so impeccably preserved. I mean, when you look in these amber at these amber bees and they just you can see all of the parts of their body their their legs and their antenna and their body and it just it just strikes you that there must be dna in these things and so we thought that Perhaps one of the problems, one of the reasons people hadn't been able to get DNA from stuff preserved in amber, was that the amber itself was somehow inhibiting the reactions that were necessary to amplify DNA. So what we wanted to do was separate the amber as much as possible from these tiny little bees. So if you can imagine this crazy scenario where you have a couple of scientists who completely don't believe that they're actually doing this research, and this beautiful piece of amber, and we're going into our clean lab wearing this crazy suit that we always wear to to protect the samples from our own DNA, completely covered up like we're wearing a spacesuit, like we're going into a place where we're going to touch something really dangerous to us. But in fact, it's us that are dangerous to the sample. So we walk into this clean room with this beautiful piece of amber and we've gotten it really, really cold because amber is kind of smooshy, malleable. You know, you can pick it with your fingernail if you touch this stuff. But we want to be able to break it. So we got it really cold. We we put it in dry ice and uh, we have these crazy suits on and a big hammer and we stick this frozen piece down on a stone and just start smashing it with everything that we have to see if we can get it into small pieces to get these bees out and then picking through these pieces to to separate the bees from the amber. And that was kind of fun, if a little bit nuts. <laughs> we did uh, eventually try to extract DNA from these things and found that there, there was not any DNA surviving in this amber, which is, was not that surprising if it was a bit disappointing.
1: So that I mean, it's not surprising to you. (laughs) But to me, I was really I guess I just thought that, you know, if something like a leg is preserved, then why wouldn't I mean, what is the leg made up of? It's made up of cells, one part of which is DNA. So why is it that DNA decomposes, you know, kind of more rapidly or differently, but the other parts of the cells that make up uh, the organism still kind of remain?
0: Yes, DNA decomposes differently from other structural components of cells. So um, it actually the the com- the composition of DNA are these two uh, two strands of molecules that are bound together by these hydrogen bonds, and it's a sugar phosphate backbone. And what happens is when bacteria or other microbes get into this sample, and and amber is actually very porous, and bacteria can enter. They just start chewing up this backbone of DNA, breaking it down into small and smaller pieces. So the DNA itself does decompose at a faster rate than other components that might be um, more stable, structurally stable over time than the DNA itself.
1: That's kind of an amazing picture to imagine that you have these like what look like perfectly preserved insects, but their insides like at this molecular level have been eaten out by bacteria. I don't know. For me, that just seems really, really interesting.
0: Yeah, but that's the way it is. And the same is true for the other fossils that we find. I mean, when we go out into Siberia or into Alaska or into caves in, in not as cold places, but where the, the temperature is consistently low, we can find surviving DNA molecules, but they're they're small. They're short, and they contain characteristic types of damage that reflect this decay process, this breaking down of, of DNA into smaller and smaller fragments. So if I were to extract DNA from a cheek swab, that I took from my own cheek or a piece of skin from a living organism or muscle tissue, I could get strands of DNA out of that extract that were millions, sometimes many millions, of base pairs long, just strings, long strings of A's, C's, G's, and T's, the the bases that make up DNA. But the average fragment length that we get out of even well-preserved bones that we pick up in Siberia or Alaska is somewhere between 60 and 100 bases. So there's a lot of decay that goes on right between the time of death and when we, when we actually find these bones, even if they've been frozen pretty quickly after death.
1: So that already poses a huge technical problem, obviously, in terms of sequencing ancient DNA. So how do you actually do it? Sequencing ancient
0: DNA is really similar to sequencing any other type of DNA, except that the fragments that we recover are damaged and really short. So we extract DNA, we grind up a little piece of bone into a fine powder, and then we chemically digest it, uh, that bone, get rid of all the stuff that isn't DNA, and then sequence these short fragments of DNA. The the real problem with DNA is not in in the sequencing itself, but in the mapping and assembly. So you don't really want 60 base pairs fragments of DNA, you want the 4 billion base pair genome of a mammoth, for example. But how do you turn those tiny little broken fragments of DNA into this 4 billion base pair genome sequence? And with a modern genome, you can get long fragments of DNA and you can slowly piece these things together to create this big genome. With ancient DNA, we just can't do that. So the way that people have been sequencing genomes of species that are extinct is by comparing, by mapping these Tiny little fragments to existing genomes from living things. So, if we want to sequence the mammoth genome, we already have a pretty good copy of an elephant genome. And then we take each of those 60 base pair fragments and, one at a time in a computer, figure out where along that 4 billion base pair mammoth genome sequence that 60 base pair fragment best fits. And then we just do that with many, many billions, hundreds of billions of short fragments until eventually we've pieced together like a big puzzle, this what we think is a pretty good representation of a mammoth genome.
1: And what do you what do you think is the kind of error rate in that kind of the sequencing of the whole genome? I mean, how confident are you that you've got the puzzles pieces in the right places and that you have most if not all of them?
0: Those two things are very different. So when we sequence a lot of DNA, we might see every place in the genome hundreds of times. And in that case, we can be pretty confident that we've made the right call. We know what the right letter of DNA is at that spot. Um, but if there are places in the genome where the elephant is very different from the mammoth, they might not be the same right? So we have this big, long elephant genome sequence, but we're looking for something that's not there. And in that case, we'll miss it using this approach. And that is a, a pretty big concern. If if you want to generate the sequence of a mammoth genome, and you really want to know what's different between a mammoth and its closest living relative, an Asian elephant, the bits of the genome that might be most important to figure out are exactly those bits that it's going to be hardest to resolve.
1: And of course, those are the bits that, dif- you know, make those two species different. Uh, but one species we have, <laughs> and the other we don't. So how do you know, you know, what are, because you know, ultimately, even if you have the blueprint, you know, you still have to figure out how these genes will be expressed. And there's, you know, we could, we'll we talk in a minute about the whole abigenetics issue and, and sort of gene expression. But how do you even know, you know, what kinds of traits or or, you know, how the where even the genes you know are essentially how, how does that happen for a species that you don't have in front of you
0: this is a great question, and it's actually one of the the big puzzles that um, those of us who are interested in following up on this type of technology will have to solve. So fortunately, with the, in, the, in the specific case of mammoths and Asian elephants, um, these species are pretty similar. So with an Asian elephant, you already have about 99% of a mammoth. They only differ at about 1% of the bases in their genome. This translates to around 1.5 million differences over the four or so billion letters that make up their DNA code. So what scientists can do and have actually already begun to do is sequence a whole bunch of Asian elephant genomes and also a whole bunch of mammoth genomes and then look for specific differences between those two species. Now, fortunately, with Asian elephants, we can look at expression. We can sequence transcriptomes, the part of the genome that is the genes that are being expressed, and figure out where they are by comparison to other species, including humans. You know, we're, we're all mammals. We're not that diverse even though we are pretty different from each other. So in many cases, it's pretty easy to know where the genes are. And then by comparing populations of Asian elephants with populations of mammoths, we can identify the differences, the sequence level differences between those two that change the gene sequence, change the protein sequence that we see. And then we might be able to design experiments that we could do in, in culture, in addition a lab that actually measure what those differences mean in terms of what those how those genes behave or what they do. Um, a good example of this, one of the first examples of a, a team really digging into uh, genetic differences at the level of the DNA code between Asian elephants and mammoths and what these mean was a group in Canada a few years ago discovered that um, there were a couple of differences, actually three differences, in a, one of the genes that code for uh, red blood cells, hemoglobin genes, in, in between Asian elephants and mammoths. And they were able to make cells that expressed the mammoth version of these genes and the Asian elephant version of these genes and then measure the differences that these coding differences actually resulted in 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 culture. And they showed that the elephant version of the gene was not as good as the mammoth version of the gene at carrying oxygen around the body. This is what the red blood cells do when it's cold. And we're able to conclude that the specific mutations in the mammoth version of the gene enabled that tropically adapted ancestor of of mammoths to move into colder locations. So this really is one very clear example of how a specific DNA sequence level difference between mammoths and Asian elephants causes phenotypic differences, behavioral or physiological differences in mammoths that we don't see in elephants today.
1: That is so fascinating. So
0: the process would be to to do that just over and over again and identify these genes. And this is, you know, this is a big problem in all of genomics. We're, we, we have now lots of different complete genome sequences for living animals, but that's kind of like being handed the phone book for all of the biggest cities in the world with all the names removed. You know, we have lots of lists of letters. And now we have to figure out what those letters do. Where are the genes? And what do those differences mean?
1: And I imagine, of course, there are some phenotypes that are going to be easier than others. Like, for example, in, in, in the case that you described, you know, a, a, you know, you can create single cells, and you can sort of see that how, you know, how they might be involved in temperature regulation. But of course, a lot of genes are going to be regulating behavior. And that is going to be, I think, in some ways, much harder to kind of grasp when you actually, let's say we've been successful now at de-extincting and, you know, creating a mammoth. But we don't know whether it's going to be uh, you know, a true mammoth the way it was, you know, well, that's that's actually already there's like oh, so much stuff in that question. But <laughs> I guess what I what I'm trying to get at is, you know, let's let's talk a little bit maybe about how the environment in which the baby mammoth is going to grow up in, um, how that would influence the genes that would get, you know, sort of turned on and off and, and how close, you know, how do we... In- or is it even important to ensure that we have a mammoth that resembles the mammoth that went extinct? Or are we, you know, are we going to try to create a mammoth that just can survive in our world now?
0: Right. So this is a lot of questions all packed into (laughs) one here. (laughs) Let me give it a go. How about this? So there are lots of different, lots of different things that will affect gene expression. You talked about epigenetics before, um, very briefly, and we don't fully understand all of these things. Um, We know that if we were able to take an elephant cell and change some of the DNA within that elephant genome so that it looks more like a mammoth genome and then use that to create an embryo, and somehow implant that embryo in a mom elephant, and we can talk about the the ethics and uh, technical hurdles of this later, if you like to. But I think there's a there's a lot to get into here. Um, then, if we were able to do that. Uh, then we would have this developing embryo whose genome was a tiny little bit mammoth-like, developing inside an elephant. And some of that switching on and off of genes during development is gonna be controlled by the mom, who's an elephant. So how do we know that even if we've turned this genome into something a little bit mammoth-like, that these these this work that we've done won't be overridden, as it were, by developing inside an elephant or being born and and then eating an elephant's diet. We're just starting to learn about how much the, the, our diet and the microbiome that we have in our gut affects the way that our genes express, right? Um, elephants will often eat the poo of their mom in order to set up that community of bacteria that they need in their guts to break down their food. So this baby mammoth elephant hybrid would have an elephant's gut microbiome. And how would that affect what it, what it looked like? But I think outside of all of this, you know, we we set this up and and I I didn't go into, you know, being raised by elephants in an elephant environment and then being released into an elephant atmosphere. All of these things will affect the expression of these genes. But I think what's important to do at this point is to step back and ask, as you did, why? Why are we doing this? Um, Are we doing this because we want to create something that's 100% identical to a species that used to be alive? And if that is our motivation, if that's what we really want to do, that's our goal, then I think we're probably going to be sorely disappointed. There is really no way, given all of these constraints, that we're ever going to create something that's 100% identical to a species that is gone. The habitat it lived in just doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't have the mom that it would need to do that. We're not going to be able to make all the changes to the genome. It's just not going to be possible. But people like me and uh, like Ryan Phelan and Stuart Brand from Revive and Restore in San Francisco, what we're thinking about is not creating something that is identical to something that wants to live, but, but in in using this technology to create something that is is new, but Something that is similar to a species that's alive, but adapted to different habitats, potentially able to survive in this place where this extinct species might be. So, if, like in the case of a mammoth, what's missing with their extinction are interactions between these large grazing herbivores and the habitat in which they lived, and if there's compelling ecological reason to reinstate, to restore these missing ecological interactions, we don't need a mammoth to do that. We just need an elephant. That's capable of surviving in Siberia. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense, and that kind of gets to the very core of the question that's raised in the title of your book: How to clone a mammoth. And you know, I, I, within the first couple of pages, I was convinced by your writing that we actually can't clone a mammoth because, well, for one thing, we don't even have any living cells. <laughs> so, can you talk a little bit about the difference between? cloning as most of us understand it, which is creating an an exact copy of an organism, um, and really what you're talking about, which is the most likely future for de-extinction.
0: So when most people think of cloning, what they're imagining is this very specific scientific technique that's also known as somatic cell nuclear transfer. This is a technique that was first used in the mid-1990s by scientists at the Roslin Institute in Scotland to create Dolly the sheep. Um, do you remember Dolly? Dolly was a, an identical clone that um, the way that they created her was they took a mammary cell. This is a, a – so in in our bodies, we have basically two types of cells, somatic cells and germ cells. Germ cells are sperm and eggs, and somatic cells are pretty much everything else. So a sperm and an egg would normally come together, fuse to create a, a zygote, which would develop into an embryo and become a living being. A somatic cell – happens later on in development and somatic cells have a very strict set of instructions about which genes are turned on and which genes are turned off and those instructions are used for that cell to become the type of cell it is a lung cell or a liver cell or a tissue cell or an eyeball cell that kind of thing so the When in somatic cell transfer, the goal is to trick one of these somatic cells into forgetting all of these instructions that it has to become that particular type of cell and reset itself to become one of these early embryonic cells that has the capability of differentiating, dividing, and turning into every type of somatic cell necessary to create a whole living thing. And since the mid-1990s, when Dolly was first born, the technology to use this Cloning the somatic cell nuclear transfer has gotten a lot better, and we've created clones of horses and dogs and cats and sheep and pigs and all sorts of of animals, but it requires... A living somatic cell, a living cell that has an intact genome. And as we talked about early in this conversation, with something that's been dead for a very long time or even not a very long time, the DNA that's in those cells has already started to be broken down into smaller and smaller fragments. That means we don't have a living cell and we can't clone anything using that particular technology. Right? Right. Okay. So the technology that people are considering using for this is not somatic cell nuclear transfer initially, although that does come in in just a little bit. So what we would do instead is take a living cell of a closely related species, in the case of a mammoth, an Asian elephant. And then we would use genome editing technologies. And there's one that's been in the news recently quite a lot called CRISPR-Cas9 editing. This is an incredibly powerful technology that is kind of like if you imagine having a little robot that you can insert into a cell that's capable of finding exactly the place you've programmed it to find in the cell and then chop out a bit of DNA and replace it with something else that you've stuck into that cell with it, right? It's, It's not a robot. It's actually a naturally occurring. um, little protein enzyme complex that's found in bacteria and archaea. But scientists have figured out how to harness this technology to basically cut and paste genomes. You can cut out bits you want to get rid of and paste other bits in its place. So we would take an Asian elephant genome and cut and paste our way into having an Asian elephant that is a little bit more and then a little bit more mammoth-like. And there's actually a team at Harvard led by George Church who's been working on this technology and have had some, con- some success cut and pasting an elephant genome into something that has about 14 mammoth genes in it. So this is the technology that one would use, create this hybrid genome, and then use cloning, somatic cell nuclear transfer, to change that, hybrid, that cell that contains the hybrid genome into an embryo.
1: And so this technology kind of brings up, uh, of course, a lot of ethical questions. But one, I think, is particularly uh, modern contemporary right now, especially given the reaction we've had in the news recently to the Planned Parenthood thing. (laughs) Don't really want to go into that into much detail, except to say that I think that, you know, a lot of people are probably concerned about the fact that in the process of creating a mammoth or de-extincting a mammoth, there are going to be a lot of, you know, Failures along the way, and so how do you how how are you as scientists thinking about sort of uh, the ethical boundaries of of doing this kind of work? I mean, is there is there a kind of you know regulation of you know, at what point do you actually implant uh, an embryo into a surrogate? You know, how confident are you? You know, what do people think about that, and who's making those decisions? One
0: of the important things to to know when you're thinking about this is that most of the failures are going to happen. When you just have a cell in a dish, and that cell doesn't even yet have the capability of turning into an embryo. So one would have to identify what things you would want to change in the genome sequence and try to make it work and and much of the challenge is actually going to be to get to the point where you could then even think about creating an embryo and after that the the failures that might exist are, are really nothing more than what we already see in somatic cell nuclear transfer which does have a pretty high failure rate um, most of these are failures that happen when these cells um, don't implant, when there isn't a pregnancy at all that that forms after this, or where, where embryonic development stops at a particular place. Now, obviously, this is one of the main ethical considerations. In particular, people are concerned about this with humans, and there have been a lot of calls by scientists to really think hard about whether we want to continue along the lines of this research with humans, in fact, calling a, a stop to human research with this. However, I think that this technology is potentially powerful in... And could be something that we do want to think about in today's society. I think, you know, if we think about the problem we have with extinctions, the present day extinction crisis, how our climate is changing so rapidly that many species can't keep up, we really are in a bind. We need new technologies that allow us to try to make a difference, to better conserve these species given the the present climate. And this technology, as scary as it might seem, is one that could could be something that changes conservation, changes the way we do things. If we can use this technology to provide genetic booster shots, if you will, to species that are suffering because of rapid climate change or um, genetic bottlenecks where they have so little diversity that they can no longer fight off disease in their population, we could use this technology to inject genetic diversity into these populations, to provide them adaptations that allow them to survive. Yes, there are risks involved, and yes, there are ethical considerations that we will really need to think about hard before we do this. But the risk of doing nothing, as I say in the book, is potentially greater.
1: And I think that one of the reasons why we all think about mammoths, <laughs> when we think about de-extinction, you know, is, is, is largely cultural, right? They're, they seem really cute, especially the baby mammoth that just sounds like, well, I want one like immediately. It uh, <laughs> seems like exactly the right <laughs> thing we should be doing. But if you extend this to say you know, let's let's look at bringing back features or traits of the Neanderthals and, you know, putting those into humans because maybe we're going to get to, you know, a kind of dystopic future in which case, you know, the, the human species is going to have trouble surviving and maybe we can get some kind of, um, you know, enhancement from, say, ancient Neanderthal DNA that will help us deal with a completely different environment. I mean, do you see that as a possibility or is that just pure science fiction?
0: I am not personally worried about the future of humans. I think that we have shown that we can survive pretty much anything. I am more worried about the future of the other species on this world that we are busy pushing out of every remaining habitat that exists. I, you know, using this technology on humans is obviously something that um, people are very worried about. I am very worried about. I think there are huge ethical implications to trying to use this technology to edit human genomes. Where I see this technology as powerful and useful is in saving other species, we don't need saving. We're doing just fine. But we really do need to consider what we can do to save things like black-footed ferrets that are declining because there's a new disease that's killing them and they have no diversity because we killed most of them that already exist. Or all the different species of birds that are endangered on islands. Could we use this technology to provide them a genetic booster shot and a chance at surviving in the face of all the adversity that that is going on? Uh, I think that this is where we really need to hone our efforts in using this technology and not to thinking about editing our genomes for fun or profit.
1: And so when you think about sort of in the last couple of minutes we have remaining about the the potential for this technology and, you know, you've mentioned sort of creating more diversity, maybe, you know, saving current species that are in danger of extinction or bringing back recently extinct species because at least the environment is as, you know, close to what they were experiencing before. What do you see as the kind of, I mean, are, are you at all worried about us getting this this kind of technology going to the point where we're just engineering an entire ecosystem? I mean, could we get that far? Or is this just too cumbersome um, to think about, you know, this being a, a, a very kind of ubiquitous or, or, or common uh, thing that we're doing to, to the species that surround us?
0: Well, right now, it's not really possible to use this technology at any sort of scale. Um, We are still very much in the early stages of even figuring out how to do the genome editing with many of these species. Um, A fear of an engineered ecosystem, I'm afraid, is something that is already realized. The world that we live in is very much engineered by humans. We have restricted all of the other species on this planet to less than 10% of the space that's available and allowed ourselves to have 90% of the planet. If we are imagining that this 10% that's there is actually wild space that hasn't been touched by humans, we're misleading ourselves. What I'm arguing is that we need to be more thoughtful engineers of the rest of the planet that's around us. And this technology may provide us the means to be more careful, to think more carefully, to do some good risk assessment as to what might happen. Obviously any change that we make to the ecosystem does not happen in isolation. There would be consequences for any new species or edited species that's released. But there are consequences whenever we introduce an invasive species into an environment, or cut down a forest, or pollute a river. And these are consequences that we often don't think about. I'm arguing that we need to think harder, and that maybe this technology provides a mean for us to make up for some of the damage we've already done.
1: Well, on that note, I want to let our listeners know that Beth Shapiro's book, How to Clone a Mammoth, The Science of De-Extinction, is available from booksellers everywhere. And I want to thank you for being on Inquiring Minds, Beth Shapiro.
0: Thank you.
2: Wow, we have to talk about the science a little bit more because this is kind of earth shattering. This is probably one of the biggest scientific technologies to come a- come along in the last decade.
1: Yeah. And Beth is so great at making it understandable. So, you know, clearly she deserved the Rhodes. I have no grievances with her on that.
2: Well, it sounds like you have a little minor grievance, but that's fine. <laughs> but like, let's talk about the technology itself before we talk about any of the other implications. Um, did you get a sense of how far along they actually are in this process? Like, we're talking about mammoths, but it feels like we're barely in the infancy of the technology.
1: Uh, it doesn't feel that way to me. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if George Church has got a mammoth, you know, embryo somewhere that's being ready to be implanted. I mean, I, you know, I know that there's obviously, there's a lot, a lot of work that needs to be done before we can get a fully, you know a, 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 you know, a mammoth as it was, right? But a hairy elephant, I think, is probably in the works.
2: Willie the ele- elephant is is around the corner. That's almost mind blowing. Just from the pure uh stance of taking an elephant that has ninety nine percent similarity with a mammoth, and then recovering, you know, like sixty to hundred pieces of that that genome, and then mapping up from there to actually create this animal. Like the math of it almost seems mind boggling to me.
1: Yeah, no, I I totally agree. I mean, I, you know, maybe the mammoth is going to be not the first animal to be Dixie. Maybe we should really think more along the lines of the passenger pigeon, Um, you know. um, But I think we are at the point where this is becoming a potential reality in the next decade or so, depending on, you know, the singularity. (laughs) Um, And I think that we need to start talking about what the implications might be.
2: Well, just from a pure science standpoint, do you see the barriers that the ethics bringing up being an impediment to the science? Or is it moving forward? It's still at a a great neck
1: praise. Uh, I I think it's going to move forward regardless. I think the ethics have to catch up. But I think there people are going to be working on this. I mean, we've seen that in a lot of other fields of science where, you know, mistakes were made in, uh, in previous um, scientific endeavors, because the ethics weren't there yet. And the science outpaced the ethics. And I think we have the same potential problem here.
2: But what about the what happened with that Chinese group experimenting on human embryos? Like, I felt like there was a full stop for a moment in the scientific field around research utilizing CRISPR, certainly in humans, but I mean, just utilizing the technology at this point.
1: I guess maybe I'm a little skeptical of whether or not there was a full stop or there was just a move to to go underground.
2: Well, I think the the science is incredibly powerful. We're essentially talking about cut and paste and DNA. And without even applying all of the science fiction to it, like the Gattaca's, all of the other nonsense that we can attribute to it, uh, just functionally that we can we can potentially bring back a species, even though it's not going to be exactly the same as it once was, is a real monumental achievement um, in science. I think it's one of those uh, earth-shattering ones that just explodes the imagination. Do you see it that way, or do you are given more pause.
1: I absolutely see it that way. And in fact, I go a step further and think that not far behind is going to be the same kind of CRISPR technology applied to human embryos. And that's where, I mean, I, I just think like, you know, if you're going to start to debate the ethics between bringing back a passenger pigeon or being able to use CRISPR to solve a genetic disease, you know, completely in an embryo. Like I, you know, I don't know, this is why I think we have to have these conversations, because I think this is going to hit humans a lot faster than we are prepared to consider it from an ethical perspective.
2: I know you're going to talk a lot about the conservation next week and the ethics and the implications but the one word that i didn't hear come up that i know is coming just from a science standpoint is the patent war that's going to come down the pipe because somebody's going to have to make money on this technology and i imagine there is a real fight going on behind the scenes
1: i'm sure there already is i'm sure there are a lot of patent attorneys that are really carefully thinking about how you know how to how to craft arguments and and so forth but yeah i think you're exactly right
2: i can't wait for next week
1: cool so that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our new Patreon campaign, which we launched a couple of weeks ago.
2: Shout outs to Sean Johnson, Nick Cadillac and Herring Chang for supporting our Patreon. Please consider supporting us on Patreon.com inquiringminds Inquiring Minds because every dollar you put in there is going to help keep this show running.
1: You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook. You can also send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org.
2: This episode is sponsored by Indian Summers, the new masterpiece series on PBS. Set in India in 1932, during the twilight of British rule, it's a twist on the period drama, providing a window into both British and Indian experiences during this time. While the British in India are living a life of privilege, the Indian people are beginning to rise up with calls for independence from British rule. It features complex plot lines that touch on politics, class, romance, and the rise of a nation. This nine part series premieres Sunday, September 27th at nine, eight central on Masterpiece on PBS.
1: And once again, this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. But best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of Practicing Mindfulness, An Introduction to Meditation. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds.
2: And this episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. And Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you go to harrys.com and use coupon code inquiringminds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Willie Mammoth, Adam Isaac, in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, CityLab, Medium, and The Huffington Post. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And thanks to everyone who came out to our live show last week.
1: It was great fun to see you at DragonCon. And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at IndreVis.
2: And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah,
0: that's me.